Hi, everybody. Thanks very much for checking out this edition of Tellage Talks. Marla Reidenauer retired as sports columnist at the Akron Beacon Journal in recent months, but way back in 1981, she was the first female Browns beat reporter for the Dayton Daily News. And then back in 1975, she was the first woman editor of Eastern Kentucky University's student newspaper. Marla has won numerous awards from the Associated Press, the Pro Football Writers Association of America, Golf Writers Association, and so on down the line. And she also spoke during our interview quite openly about a very, very dark incident in her past. It took the signing of Deshaun Watson by the Cleveland Browns to bring this to light. And her writing helped a lot of people in similar types of situations. My interview with her coming up in just a second. But first, since 2015, the Cooper Foundation has been helping children and young adults with special needs. Sometimes you just need a helping hand. Go to thecoopfoundation.com for more information. Now my interview with Marla Reidenauer. Marla, great to sit down with you. So many things to go over. First of all, you broke the barrier back in college at Eastern Kentucky. You were the first woman sports editor of the paper. Take us back there and where did this, this inclination of yours to be a writer and a sports writer come from? Well, this is kind of bizarre, but... <laughs> I, when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. Okay. Then I figured out how long, hard it was to get, found out how hard it was to get into physical therapy school. <laughs> I mean, even though I was a good student, I, they, they take like two out-of-state students or whatever, you know, like it's hard. So I went to the counseling center at EKU and did an aptitude test, and journalism was one of the things that came up. Well, it was funny because back in the fifth grade, I had done a report in school about my career in journalism and I cut the headline I cut the letters out of the newspaper and stuck them on the front of the report and all this stuff so but I mean what's funny is back when I was a kid I'm living in Louisville Kentucky and you're reading some of the greats yeah. in sports journalism Hot Dave Kindred Billy Reed you know there it was a who's who of journalists working in the Louisville, you know, mm -hmm. at, they had two papers back then. So, I mean, it was just an incredible, I mean, I tell Dave Kindred when I used to see him at like the Masters or whatever, you're the reason I'm a sports writer because I read you all the time. But when I was in college, the sports editor was a senior and he graduated and all the people that wrote for him left <laughs> so because they were all his friends. Where'd so, the staff go? So they didn't have any sports writers. So I was working on the paper, just writing news and, you know, enrollment tops 12,000 or whatever kind of stories and I volunteered to do it so the editor of the paper said well we'll give you a six-month trial and I had never written a sports story in my life until then he, I wrote some feature about racquetball that I recently came across when I was throwing out stuff <laughs> but um, he gave me the six-month trial and he also I think he was a little intrigued about we can say we had the first woman sports editor at a you know state university in Kentucky, kind yeah. of a you know kind of a cool thing. So sure. So since that day, I have the only time I haven't been a sports writer was I had like six months of the Dayton Daily News when we did an investigation into harness race horse race fixing at the Dayton Daily. That I've been 
always writing. Always writing, you know, day-to-day sports ever since then. What was the uh, reception for it? Was it much of a knowledge that this was groundbreaking things going on here at Eastern Kentucky back then for you? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was like, but uh, we were also a weekly back then. So it wasn't like writing a game story. I mean, I would write like a little wrap up of the football game and look ahead to the next week's game. Gotcha. So I would just sit down with the coach in his office. It wasn't like I was going in the locker room and or asking to do that. Now, when they won the conference championship, I did ask to go in and see just the player reaction, just to get sure. the capture the mood a little bit. And what's funny is Roy Kidd, Hall of Fame coach, he asked his wife. She's the one who talked him into letting me go in there to see the reaction. There was only, you know, obviously it was set up only if we win. Okay. You know, do you go in and, you know, get the kind of get the emotions of the whole thing? And so she's the one who talked him into it. So I found that out, like, not that many years ago. She was the one who told me she's the one who convinced Roy to uh, let me do that. But I don't I don't remember it being a, an issue when I did interview players. Okay. I, don't, I don't remember that being a problem. I mean, I will say this. I didn't – I covered football and basketball, and I had somebody else do the other sports. Okay. So – and I wrote a little column called – I'm out with Marla, and I mean, it was so corny, but, <laughs> you know, like, you don't know what you're doing, you're just forging ahead. How did you, yeah, you, you kind of, like, learn on the fly as you're going, but how did you develop that, uh, your own style as a writer, as a columnist? How does that come about? It, it Just continue to read as much as possible, work on interview skills, and, and looking for the right hook to write about? Or what? Yeah, it's weird. But, I mean, like, a, I was always an avid reader. And uh, like I said, there was books and the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's weird, like, I can't exactly tell you when I kind of became more of a less an X's and O's person. And more, I more care about them. I want to write about the people. I don't necessarily. And that evolved over time. Maybe... Um, it might have been not been until I got my first job as a full-time writer was at the Columbus Dispatch, and I went there in 1990. Okay. So that's when I think I sort of shifted my focus to writing about people. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I did news, sports news and stuff, but that was kind of where I found my passion was that. And... Um, I don't know. I always liked it was more of a feature person than I was. A long read, yeah, kind of yeah. dig into someone's personality. Right, right. Just a. What just, made them tick? Right. The, I mean, I'm big into the psychology of sports, which is. Some people get it. Terry Francona doesn't, or if he doesn't, he doesn't want to talk about it. But, um, you know, like that's kind of my thing. Like I want to go inside and kind of find out what makes people tick. Was there that? much of a pushback against you when you started on the Browns beat in 1981. Sam was the coach, Sam Rotigliano. Uh Who helped you along the way, and what was that experience like for you, Marlon? Well, I got to give credit to Art Modell. I mean, he's the one who approved this thing. I mean, Sam called me into his office. I tell this story all the time. He called me into his office at training camp was at Kent State. And he gives me, like, little kind of, like, speech, like, lays down the law, like... I would expect you to act like I would expect my daughter to act. And you, he's like, you got to, you know, 
he gave me this when you go in the locker room you're gonna have to yell woman in the locker room you as gotta soon announce as the door, yourself gotta yeah. announce yourself when the door opens and um what's funny is a few years after the fact i was in the on venice beach with some friends and we ran into elvis franks who used to play for the browns and he tells them let me tell you a story about marla I didn't, I'd never heard this in my life. Those guys that were around the door when I was yelling sure. that I was coming in would all were all dropping their towels at the same time. But I never, he, they gave it up after a few games because I never noticed. I developed this skill of like casing the locker room by looking from the nose up. I would like uh, sure. scan the heads, sure. you know, because you can see from the nose and eyes and hair and everything you can pretty much find whatever you need but i was so paranoid about not seeing anything or behaving like sam expected yeah. you know that kind of thing that i really went out of my way to and fu- and it's funny one of my coworkers in dayton gary noon used to say you can scope out a locker room better than anyone i know but i said well that came from the years when i was so paranoid my, my boss at the dayton daily said i don't want you making any headlines he told me i was six months after i went to dayton he put me on the browns but he said i don't want you reading about some kind of locker room controversy or you know he laid down the law too so i mean i had a lot of people take a chance on me in 1981 but i think i proved myself that i was legit um well it goes back to roy kidd saying you knew more than yeah, he others. said in one of the football banquets at EKU, it was probably the first one, he said he thanks me during the banquet and appreciated your coverage. And he, he said, which I couldn't believe he said, that I proved to him that a woman could know more about sports than he even imagined. I mean, I was shocked that he said that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's probably not going on the, the experience of his family members, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So. Um, but I mean, but it was also, I still feel like you're always in prove it mode, especially on a professional beat because every year there's a lot of new faces, you know, you know, you, so, you know, not just rookies, but free agents. I mean, and that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. the biggest blowback I ever got was there was a story in Brown's News Illustrated about me and the wives were totally against it. Players, wives thought I was just there to like find a husband. A voyeur, right. Um, and Chuck Heaton wrote a column suggesting that Art should buy robes for, or towels like those that go yeah. around the waist yeah. for all the players and monogram them with their initials and numbers or whatever. And I'm like, I thought that was lame, but you know, <laughs> yeah. like, um, and then one time I did have a discussion with a player. I don't know if I should name him or not. Um, in the lobby of the team hotel okay. who who accused me of basically going back to Dayton and telling my girlfriends who's got the best body and who's built like Which this. Which of course and, you had no bit care, I mean, care to do what But he thought that's what I was there for. And wow. I, I mean that sort of shocked me because but now I think it's less of an issue because these guys have women covering them in college. Yeah. Back then when I was starting out it's not like there were a whole lot of women writing about sports back, you know, in the right. 80s. So um, so now, I, I, even though I still feel like you're proving yourself every year, it's less. And there's women, you know, all in all phases of the business that, mm-hmm. you know, they're seeing them on TV and, you know, sideline reporters and everything. So 
Um, but I can't put my finger on anybody else besides Sam and Art are the ones that deserve Again, the kudos. Again, you have to give for, him credit for, yeah. for um, being open to that concept. Was there any uh, uh, difficulty with other people on the beat, per se? No, uh, early not, a, on? not all, at everybody all. Everybody was really helpful. Although Chuck and Russ were a different breed, Rush Schneider, oh. you know, but um, no, I don't... And, and in fact, you know, when I covered women's sports for four years in Lexington before I went to Dayton... They needed a woman to cover, like, you know, they, I got my job because they needed a woman to, hire, to cover Kentucky women's basketball. They had just hired their first full-time women's coach, and that was in 1976, and that's why they hired, they needed a woman. But if there was a guy covering the game, I interviewed the people in the hall. I didn't think it was fair for me to go in the locker room, a woman's locker room, and, not, and the guys couldn't come right. in. Right. So now the most interesting thing was back then, you know, not there was not a league mandate. Like, I remember covering a Steeler game where I'm almost positive it was Leslie Visser and I standing outside the Steelers' rocker, or and Bradshaw stiffed us and wouldn't come out, so they brought out somebody else. And I had that happen at Reds games where they would Cincinnati Reds would bring out a player, but it wasn't always the one you wanted. Like I'm waiting for Fred Norman who one is 100 victories a pitcher and they bring Ray Knight and you know I didn't even have any questions ready you know like because right. I'm expecting it's going to be a pitcher you know like so and back then I would go to Cincinnati and cover the Bengals occasionally to help out well the Bengals wouldn't let women in the locker room so I, and I covered the Bengals first Super Bowl appearance when it was they played the 49ers in Pontiac the Bengals didn't let women in the locker room, so I covered the opponent in that whole run-up. I covered the freezer bowl and all that, and I did all the opposing opponents. Mm-hmm. And that season, when they played the Chargers, I go, I'm go. i going in the Charger locker room after the game. Chuck Muncie is sitting right there, looks at me like, raises his eyebrow like, are you really doing this? And I, I, said, I said to him, don't say anything, and I dashed by and just went right in. Nobody said anything. But I couldn't do. I couldn't go in the Bengals. Uh-huh. Um, and so I ended up kneeling at Joe Montana's feet after the Super Bowl. There was like ten people around him. That's how small the yeah. media core yes. was back then. But we were an afternoon paper. A lot of guys were still writing in the press box. You know, I was. I went downstairs. You know, like. But like I said, the the opposing teams weren't against it. Yeah. So and then even after the NFL allowed it. You know, when there was no Browns, I covered the Bengals for the Columbus Dispatch. (laughs) In the practice facility, which is no longer there, it was called Spinney Field, they put up this huge concrete block wall in front of the the bathrooms and the showers, and I'm like, that should have my name on that. (laughs) I almost took a Sharpie and wrote my signature on that concrete block wall, like dedicated to Marla Ryan Network, because that thing was never there until I started covering them on a daily basis back then. Oh, Marla, I don't know how I pivot from that to, uh, (laughs) oh my gosh. Well, listen, we're still at the Columbus Dispatch when, when you gave that story, but you were mentioning before earlier in the interview about that's about when you developed the the columnist persona or not necessarily persona but a way that you wanted to look at stories and go deeper into stuff how exciting a time for you was that just to kind of like break out into a, a different mode of sports writer per se 
Oh, it's funny because my boss in Dayton said, oh, I thought you wanted to be a sports editor. And I said, well, I changed my mind when I got a chance to be a full-time writer. Um, but it was exciting, but I don't know if I really came into that full bore until I came to Akron. Okay. And you came to Akron 23, 24 years ago. That was uh, my first, it was August 1st of 1999. My first assignment was covering Ozzie Newsom's induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the Browns were coming back as an expansion team right, right. all together. And I was there to basically help out on all the pro teams back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat McManaman was covering the Browns. So... But I thought that was a perfect thing for what I wanted to do because that way I could write features about all these yeah. different sports. And I can't remember the year that they find, they named me the columnist. Um, it was after Pluto, Terry Pluto went to the plane dealer. Mm-hmm. But um, I know I was a columnist by the time LeBron played in the McDonald's All-American game because I just read my column the other day about that. Um, so, but I mean, like I said, I really feel like I came into my own at Akron just because I could write the big features and takeouts and, you know, they would send me out to the major golf tournaments because before, you know, before the Firestone tournament and I just got more opportunities to do what I really, what my passion was. Golf, it provides kind of a cool platform because these these are all kind of solitary figures in some way how they go about their craft right and yet they have personalities and you try to draw that out of them right yeah and i mean it's weird because i mean it is still a disappointment that the pga tour left firestone but i consider like this past tournament with jerry kelly and his wife having cancer uh and i had you know been wanting to talk to her about that how he and it's funny because I approached him after a round and I said, I'm sorry if the, you know, we've been talking for like 10 minutes or something. And I said, I'm sorry that I, you know, I'm taking so much of your time to go through this. And he's like, no, I want to get this out there. Like, you know, but I mean, in a sense, like sometimes golfers are a little bit more willing to go down the path that you want to go. Like, even when I talked to Steve Stricker about his health crisis, that was on the phone, but he was, you know, being the defending open. champ, he was so open. I mean, sometimes that I feel like you can get a little more personal with a guy in that kind of setting, especially in golf. I've had good luck with that. Um, mm-hmm. Never obviously had a one-on-one with Tiger, but he definitely knew who I was back then, you know. Cover, I used to cover his tournament in yeah. D.C. and, you know, that a congressional and, you know, so. But I just felt like that was the... Something about golf that I feel like lends itself to what I like to do. When you uh, uh, stepped away, if you will, from the Beacon Journal, you wrote a real uh, poignant story, I thought, Marla, because a lot of your little snippets of the stories that you recollected, uh, felt comfortable talking about, they were about like um, very personal stories. Uh, um, You know, Jim Trestle's friend, his Mm -hmm. so-called pen pal. Uh, a, 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 an athlete at the University of Akron. Tell me about some of those types of stories that kind of lit you up um, through your years in Akron as a, as a columnist. Well, Buckeye Beebe was the yeah, amazing. This is That's the buddy. one, Trestle's buddy. Um, like, 
And, you know, that came about because, you know, he meant that got mentioned in a press conference. And he says, this lady from Akron's been writing me and she suggested we run this play that Antonio Pittman ran for <laughs> 20, 30, whatever yards against Michigan. So, you know, I was I was like not going to rest until I found her. And really, I mean, we developed a relation. I still have a voicemail on my phone from her. Um, I I still have the African violet from her memorial service in my window and the. It's a miracle that I'm not good with plants. It's a miracle it's still alive. Um, Despite you, it's alive. Yes. I mean, yeah, like, um, but, I mean, those are the things that, I mean, and there were, I thought of some after I wrote that column that I, you know, I, I even forgot, you know, some that were in the earlier years, you know, like, uh-huh. you know, but people you would have a relationship with for a while after, you know, you told their story. I mean, I really like that developing that. You know, and even um, when Trestle got the job, um, I went and interviewed his mom. You know, she passed away. Eloise. At the Berea Historical Society. We spent, I bet you I was there three or four hours. She offers, she, we, she offered me half of her peanut butter sandwich over as we sat and talked over lunch. Then she gets on the phone and she starts calling like the neighbors from, you know, that lived in Berea can you come down here and talk to this reporter and you know so she's traipsing in all these people for me to interview like Like, it was like that was such a special day and i mean i'm so glad i got to do i'm sad she didn't really get to see you know his tenure you know she passed right before he coaches first game but i mean i still feel like we had a relationship even though it was only based on that that day and you know like um, I know she was sitting with uh, Mrs. Groza at his introductory press You're good, conference. Great friends. Great friends, yeah. The, the families. Yeah. Uh, you. How about Lauren Bay Regula? Yeah, she's What's a. What's that story? She's a, um, a softball pitcher that lives in Bath who pitched for Canada, and you know, that's the one story that the. I don't know where I'm going to be able to tell it now. There's another story to that. that she really battled postpartum depression and had a wasn't sure she was going to be able to i mean she pitched in the olympics when she was like 40 i think so um but she had there's another part to her story and she sort of dedicated part of her life after she left athletics you know and that's Mm -hmm. something i still want to explore but i mean i just kind of stumbled onto that and we never met in person that's why i want to sit down and talk with her hopefully some way about this she you know her husband they run a gym in the Akron suburban Akron and but part of she started this program for post you know ladies who have had children and that are you know depression issues and mm-hmm. you know kind of thing and it's like I really that story kind of I like writing I, I guess about something that I guess touching a more wide range audience. I mean, like a story that women will want to read. I mean, it's, Mm. you know, I still think going to the Olympics at age 40 when you're a softball pitcher is pretty amazing. Yeah. um, But like I said, that was something that I still have another chapter to write on that one. I don't know where I'm going to put it, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Let me throw another name here. Uh, Is it, uh, her last name is Shaw? Uh, Akron is Ivana uh, Shaw. Ivana I Shaw. haven't. She was. She's up for another big award this year, but I haven't. I couldn't get a hold of her. She because she was going into med school, but okay. I just was so impressed. Like, and that was during the pandemic. We went to 
a golf course and she and her boyfriend and I sat down in the in the clubhouse for like a couple hours and they just told me this incredible story about how they started this charity you know to help use social media to get people to volunteer for you know social you know projects causes that volunteer causes that were having problems getting people they kind of found a way to get a network out through like Instagram and all that so I mean I I just thought that was an amazing idea she won the dinosaur award but she was up for a bigger award with the NCAA that I don't know if they've named that yet might be coming out in the spring okay Um, but like she that here I am on the phone talking to her parents in Mumbai that was like (laughs) you know like the things you never think you're gonna be doing like downloading whatsapp and you know like talking to somebody in mumbai but i mean they were great i mean i mean it's like i said those are things that are like out of the realm like her dad telling me how she was hitting golf balls on a marble terrace into a blanket during the pandemic you know like those are just the kind of things that i yeah that's the kind of stuff that i like that's a little outside the box on a normal interview so well, you're inherently a storyteller i mean that's what you why you got into this crazy business no well that's why what kept me in the business that's not why i got into the business i but that's what i lived for okay you know at the especially at the end it, you know those are the kind of even if it was a guy like you're doing a profile on somebody getting ready for the nfl draft i mean Part of me is what, what, that's why the NFL Combine was my favorite thing to cover. Because some of these guys are telling their personal stories and how they got to where they, you know, to even be on the cusp of the league. And I, you know, you found some incredible stories at the Combine. Some guys will really go deep there because they want these stories out, you know. So, I, and I always liked that, like interviewing a guy and deciding. You know, do you like this guy? Do I want to follow him for, you know, the rest of his career? Just, you know, not just evaluating him as a player. Although there's been some times when Mary Kay and I looked at each other and said, we, they got to draft this guy. Ed Reed sticks out of my mind. About that. <laughs> <Ed>. <laughs> we were right about that yeah, one. Yeah, we were way right. All, all the way to the Canton, Ohio, to the yeah, Hall of Fame, so, right? Uh, but oh, no, yeah. I mean, but like I said, that I wasn't drawn to the people thing in the beginning I was just trying to make my way and find whatever do whatever I could do okay but and, uh, but I also I mean you know I had to fight my way out of that covering women's sports for four years you yeah, know there was someone you, no? a higher up at the paper in Lexington thought women could only cover couldn't cover men's sports so I mean fighting my way out of that once I got out of that I would write whatever they told me you know mm. I would I wasn't you know even when they told me you're putting we're putting on you in this FBI undercover sting operation. I mean, I learned a lot from that too because I learned like when you're writing stuff that that with legal implications, yeah, every word has to be the right word. Yeah. Like, you know, that's one thing that you I, I probably didn't like use a dictionary that often until I did that until we did that project because I started like looking up just in my normal writing. Is this the word that proper use of the word? You know, like, right. you know, but I never did that until we did that. I mean, like I said, because you you have to have your allegedly's and everything in the right oh, spot. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, uh, a fair dosage it, of allegedly. So, you know, like, 
but like I said, that that helped me along the way. You know, you needed. I learned a lot of valuable lessons in that. What are your recollections or feelings as you have kind of stepped away to a degree? You're still going to write. There'll be avenues for you, platforms for you to do that. But uh, uh, some of the people that you came up, the, the the bigger names like the Joe Thomases or the LeBrons, that you know, they're kind of um, indicative of Northeast Ohio sports. Feelings towards covering them, uh, how that was for you, for the most part. Well, I do feel really lucky because I've covered I covered LeBron and Tiger in their prime. I mean, golf being so huge of a thing in Akron, Ohio, and Firestone I, and what have you. And I was like watching Tiger and John Daly at the Memorial Tournament in the rain when nobody knew who Tiger was. What? what tiger was and he got shot an eight on the hole but daily didn't finish because it was a rain they blew the horn so the score didn't get recorded in the official oh. scores that day but i'm like but you there was there? i was the only, only one there like you know watching them hit balls in the water i can't tell you what hole it was but um they were both hitting them in the water with frequency on the same hole so but <laughs> i mean i just feel like that you know I mean, I covered a Triple Crown in uh, 1978. I went to the Triple Crown again and with Ali Sheba, and I think that was 87. But, I mean, but when you think, and I didn't get, I didn't cover, I wasn't smart enough to cover LeBron in high school, but um, I just feel like that's two of the greatest athletes of our generation, and I saw them up close and personal. I mean, when you think about how many tournaments Tiger won, well, I mean, I was covering majors. Yeah. I was covering the Memorial. I was covering Akron, you know, and I saw him at the British Open when I went over there for Jack's, Nicholas's last British Open at St. Andrews, and Tiger won that one. I mean, I have been there for a lot of Tiger Woods victories. I just feel like that's kind of, when I look back at my career, I feel like that's kind of one of the coolest things that I did. And you got a chance to see that historical figure up close quite a bit. What kind of a feeling does it give you when they go through the the, the huge part of their life that's very human, where they, you know, they have public humiliation, basically? Mm-hmm. How do how do you come about kind of uh, uh, putting your your thoughts together about an individual like that that they go through that? Well, you realize you don't ever really know these people. Uh, LeBron, maybe I get a little more about what makes him tick than Tiger, but it is the toughest part about that is distancing. You always put your fandom aside, but when somebody screws up like something big and to write about that objectively, that you know that that's a test for for you know for me at least because you don't want to be one-sided or you don't want to you know you i don't know you know and now they they want if you're a columnist you know you they want you to have a strong feeling one way or another so that would be always the most challenging thing for me after a browns game nate ulrich and i would always have to go back and forth about what do i feel most strong about after this game because sometimes it takes a while to get a handle on yeah you, you know if you're gonna have an opinion, you need to make it a. You can't say, you know, you gotta say it like you mean it, right. so to speak. So, 
So for an, an individual like, you know, let's say like, like Tiger, I mean, he's, he was, we saw, we saw him as a youngster. We all wanted, we all pulled for him. We loved the story of his father teaching him the game. But when he becomes a man and, and is vulnerable to the foibles of everyday life and temptations and what have you, we have to report that. I mean, that's all part and parcel to what they are. And it's great to the end story or the story right now where he is, where he's, you know, has that relationship with his son. Now there's the whole new generation. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun to see how that kind of turns over. I do think, you know, he's become from what looks like a great dad, you know, like, so, you know, I mean, I was never in the position where I had to write about his foibles on a daily basis, but Mm. you had to probably step back and not pour on the adulation as much, you know, in certain instances. So, mm-hmm. um, but I tr- I never tried to go crazy over that anyway. Like, you've got to keep in mind these are just games, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not gonna, you know, put them up there with the imp- most important figures of our world. So, right. Uh, what's kind of cool that I found um, over the years, just my appreciation of sports, is just how you know the, the personalities of the individuals involved. You kind of secretly pull for someone. You know, you try not to let it uh, cloud your judgment. Obviously, um, those are you know that's one aspect of it, and I enjoy that as well. But I've always appreciated the game for what it presented to us. You know, there is there is a, a drama element to it. The game's tied, you know, late in the game and how one team comes ahead of the other one, the excitement going down to the wire and what have you, and that's all well and good. But now here we have fandom kind of changed somewhat because of the gambling that's going on. What are your thoughts on just um, how that's kind of infiltrated sports, good, bad, indifferent, or what? I am worried about it. Um Jason Lloyd wrote a great column about the first month of Ohio and how we're right up there at the forefront of this, and that scares me. Um, I mean, and obviously, I used to bet the horses back in the day, so, you know, but, I mean, I'm just scared about somebody sitting at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse betting on whether, you know, Darius Garland's going to make this free throw or not. I mean, that can be, that just seems like it's advancing the addictive part of it mm-hmm. um and granted ohio needs the, the, yeah. to raise money any way they can i don't know yep. you know where the how much of this you know is really going to go to where it's supposed to go but i mean i get that part of it and yeah. that's important i think it is but it's really scares me i'm like mm-hmm. just the america's got so many problems now we got to you know we're just advancing this and i mean i don't think any amount of warnings at the end of a column or you know or like the cigarette things on the pack you know i i was smoked two packs a day at one point in my life you know that didn't matter what the warnings were you know like uh, that does kind of scare me about the Mm -hmm. will it even like affect the game i mean i i hope not but i guess i'm more worried about the dangers for the people betting on it than i think than the temptations of like back of a betting scandal like the old days or something. Yeah, and, and now I think we sign a kind of look back, look at some of the outcomes of games or things that happen within the games with a somewhat more of a jaundiced eye because, hmm, 
you know, whereas I might not have thought that before. Just that's just trying to keep it real. Let's close out here with your towards the end of your career. You did um, say you were uncomfortable with the Browns um, going to get Deshaun Watson, and there's a reason for that. Uh, tell our listeners um, as comfortable as you can be with doing it. Why? Well, I had thought about writing about this for several years. Um, but it wasn't until the Browns started their pursuit of Watson that I decided that it was time to write this story about being raped in college. Um, and and it, it's also kind of weird how it came out, too, because I'd written about it was the uh, epitome of hypocrisy for them to pursue Watson. And there was some blowback from some civic leaders in Akron, like, why was I so strong about this? And my editor sent me an email, and I so I told him the real reason. Hmm. I said, and I said, you know, I had, you know, flashbacks, you know, triggered by this thing, and I said that's why I'm so strong about it. And I said I, I might, you know, be time to write about it. Um, which you hadn't before. You never which addressed. Which I had never. I had never. I mean, there were probably only like ten people alive who knew about this. Okay. And they were mostly close girlfriends from college who lived on my floor who experienced it with me, you know, when it happened. Um, you know, people that had to bring clothes to the hospital and, you know, come pick me up from the ER and all that, you know, like, so, although I think the cops actually drove me back, but, um, you know, I just felt like I had the platform. I was never going to have a better time to help people mm-hmm. than, you know, it wasn't just like trying to gain sympathy or anything and it was about trying to help people who've been keeping a secret that like this was like a 47 year old secret or whatever like so i have lost track of how many years it was but um and i was overwhelmed with the email response mostly from a lot of them who had experienced some kind of thing some even men okay like sure boy scout leader i mean you I mean, I was, my mind was blown. I tried to save those emails. I don't know if I ever get to answer them all, but it was, the mm-hmm. response was staggering. Um, but it wasn't about, it was just about the, my strong feelings about it was in regards to the adverse reaction this was having on victims like myself, like and the insensitivity of it all. And I, it's not that I don't believe in second chances, but I, considering how long it went on, I guess I was still up in the air about whether, you know, this was a a player who was capable of change, you know? Like, I mean, so, um, so that's why I did it. I And I wanted people to know, even when I left, that's not why I left the Beacon. Right. I, I felt like, I could certainly cover Deshaun as a player. I wanted the Browns to draft him when he came out of college. But um, I just felt like it was time, you know, I had to call family members on the way to the Watson introduction press conference when I knew that story was going to, you know, hit the Internet because I didn't want them reading it on the Internet. They didn't know, and I wanted to tell them over the phone at least. Um, So... But I did, and what what is interesting about the whole thing now is there were tentacles that came out of that that I wouldn't even have thought of. Like, people were, 
saying, well, I have a granddaughter and, you know, like, I don't want my family to be like your family where you didn't talk about this stuff. Like, I want to make sure my kid or my grandkid feels open enough in our family relationship that we can discuss this. I mean, yeah. I never discussed this with my mom and dad again after they found out about it. Never. Never. So, and I never even thought about that when I wrote it. Okay. Like, the family dynamic and how someone, I guess you'd say, screwed up our family was that we didn't have that kind of nurturing... I, I do think it really broke my dad. Oh. Like, I do. But I handed him the copy of the story that I wrote for the college paper anonymously, and we never talked about it again. I was They wouldn't even have known if they hadn't gotten the bill from the ER. I did not tell them what happened initially, and it, I didn't know they were going to send the bill to the... E- to my home address so but I I'm glad I did it mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't to I didn't I wasn't like trying to attack Watts and like I think some people might have thought okay. I was trying to stand up for the other victims of sexual assault who were sort of been forgotten and or many of them anonymous because they still haven't come forward correct? right right so um so we'll see, like, maybe someday I'll, you know, maybe take, go in that direction with some kind of volunteer thing, or, you know, I, like I said, I thought about that a lot mm-hmm. in the past. There, This is one of those stories, I mean, I bet you there's only been two or three stories in my life where I'd been writing this in my mind for years. This was one of them. That the was other, there was another one when my dad died that I wrote that I had been writing that lead in my head for years. Um... Not, well, he died suddenly, but by the time I finally wrote about him passing away, because he's the reason I became a sports writer, taking me to all these games and stuff. Did he, uh, um, so he helped you develop your love for sports, first first and foremost. Right. And and because of that young passion that you had, it steered you to the path that you kind of inadvertently kind of moved along, ambled away, and then next thing you know, you're... You're a sports editor in college, and you're off you go. Right. I mean, he. I don't. I don't think he even lived to see me become the sports editor in college. He died when he was 57. But um, he took me to college when, probably when I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. Thank God that didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. But I mean, he's the one who. He was a pretty good player. I mean jock like back in the day after you went to high school they had like club teams in Louisville he played basketball you know all the kind Mm -hmm. of stuff like and he was I think he was disappointed that I had virtually no athletic ability well no I mean tennis was like my only semi thing that I was good at but when I went out for the tennis team in high school I quit after two days because it was like I'm not running I wasn't running two miles a day and doing all this I wasn't ready for that. I just, that wasn't. Was it? Yeah. No, I wasn't disciplined enough back then. Maybe I would be now, but I wouldn't. I wasn't back then. So, but that did give me the appreciation of what athletes have to do on a daily basis to be good. Well, here is my final, final question. Uh, when will you write again? Do you know? I don't really know. I, like I mentioned with Lauren Bay Regula, I, I, I want to tell that story. I have a couple more percolating in my brain um maybe some freelance you know like but 
it would have to be the kind of stories I want to tell. Uh, I just don't want to write just to say, oh, I'm still writing. Like, I see retired columnists who are doing the Substack thing and all that, and there's no way I'm doing that. I, I just, I, w- I still want to tell people stories, but, you know, if there's not, you know, an outlet for a freelancer who, you know, wants to write occasionally, well, I'll, I'll be all right with that, too. I mean, you know, I'll still be looking for the good stories. And then if I can't get them done, I'll pass them along to somebody who can, I guess. It's been a pleasure. All the best. Great talking to you too, John. Thanks once again to Marla for a great interview. I have so much respect for everything that she stands for. She is just a tremendous writer and person and universally respected. Last week's guest, David Lee Morgan, told me a story about how Marla, while she was covering the World Series of Golf in Akron, saw a bunch of young kids involved with the First Tee program. One of those kids was his daughter, Brooke. She befriended Brooke and, to this day, we're happy to report that Brooke is the assistant golf coach at Walsh University. As usual, if you're listening to this podcast, I hope that you can subscribe, rate, and or review to help the pod move along. Thanks very much to Marla for a great interview, and we hope to see you the next time around on Tellich Talks. We'll see you then.